Hi, listeners. Welcome to the Grief Out Loud podcast produced by the Dougie Center for Grieving Children. I'm Janet Christofaro and wanted to give you just a little heads up as you listen to this episode, you'll be hearing references to our old name, which was Dear Ducky. So just so you don't get too confused, you're listening to the right podcast and we look forward to bringing you even more great content under the Grief Out Loud name. Thanks for joining us. Hello, everyone, and welcome to the Dear Dougie podcast produced by the Dougie Center for Grieving Children. I'm Janet Christofaro, and thank you for tuning in today. This podcast is meant to open up the often avoided conversation about grief. While loss is something we will all experience throughout our lives, when it occurs, most of us are left not knowing what to do, how to feel, or how to talk about it. So whether you're grieving a loss or wanting to support someone who is, we hope these podcast conversations lead to a better understanding of grief and also give you some ideas and inspiration for how to show up for yourself and those you care about. One thing we really haven't talked about on this podcast is school. It's the place kids spend a ton of their time, and when they're grieving, they don't get a chance to check their grief at the door of the classroom. While we have a number of written resources for both teachers and school administrators, We thought it was time to get an episode recorded that's aimed at parents, caregivers, and teachers who are trying to best support kids who are faced with the challenging combination of grief and learning. Since I don't know that much about this, I turned to my friend Jill for help with this intimidating topic. Hi, Jill. Hi, Jana. It's nice to see you back here at the Dougie Center. Thank you. Jill was a longtime volunteer, and she is also an educator with a long career in supporting both teachers and students. And as we're talking today, There might be words like trauma and grief and stress tossed around, and I just want to give a little caveat that we can and are not assuming that grief is automatically traumatic. Children and adults may exhibit behaviors and reactions that are typical of a trauma response, but we want to be careful to not be labeling children as traumatized or grief as traumatic. Jill, for you, does it it make sense to say that grief often comes with a tremendous amount of stress and that stress and trauma can look really similar? So I think it is important to know that that grief and trauma can be different because we can all experience grief, but ultimately it doesn't have to be traumatic and have lifelong physiological traumatic impacts on us. So many experiencing loss, we can have a lot of supportive factors that help the experience not be traumatic. But it is important to know that kids who are grieving will have behaviors that can look like trauma. So, for example, if somebody's having a hard time regulating their emotions, maybe they're overreacting to an experience that seems out of proportion to what their, their reaction should be, that could be a result of trauma, and it also could be a result of grief. It seems that often the suggestions and the things that can be helpful to kids in regulating those responses might be the same. Absolutely. Yeah. It doesn't matter. We don't have to diagnose somebody with trauma or grief or stress in that our bodies can have the same and brains can have the same sort of physiological or emotional reaction. And so therefore the kinds of interventions and things we do to support each other with that are very similar. And and from our conversations in the past, some of those things, even if you're having like the best stress-free day ever, seems like a lot of the things that you talk about in terms of being able to enhance our ability to absorb positive experiences and mitigate potentially stressful experiences, they can work on any day. Absolutely. And in preventative ways, 
to help um, build our resiliency to the everyday uh, stresses that we experience. Tell us a little bit about how you came to be interested in working with kids and stress and trauma. I became interested in kids and grief and trauma by being a kid who experienced grief and trauma associated with the death of my mother when I was 12. Um, then as an adult, when I was looking for a way to volunteer in my community, I had heard, I can't remember it was on the radio or something, looking for volunteers at the Dougie Center. Uh, in the volunteer training, I thought it was really neat that the investment in the volunteers in exploring our own process of grief and our own stories and the intersection between our stories and our work with the kids. So I think that, that work actually gave me the strength and the courage to keep pursuing ways to help kids who are grieving or experience trauma. And then um, just recently in the past two or three years, I started hanging out with a couple of counselors who helped me learn about what people refer to as trauma-informed. And um, that was a whole new concept for me. But it is thinking about the ways, uh, for me as an educator, how I can improve what I do by having a clear understanding of how trauma impacts our brains and bodies. Yeah, what actually is going on in there when we think about grief, stress, and trauma? And, we, you know, there's sort of an understanding that it affects our emotions, it affects our physical bodies, it affects our cognitive capacity. Like, can you give us a quick synopsis of, like, what's happening in there? So when thinking about what happens to our brains and bodies when we experience trauma, it's um, one way that I like to talk about it is thinking about three key elements of our brain and then how those uh, activate our bodies. So if we, one of the most important parts is the amygdala. And the amygdala is the part of our brain that is always checking to see if we're safe. Anytime we encounter a new situation, our amygdala is like our guard dog trying to determine if we're safe. Mm. It doesn't think critically. It's not great at nuance, subtleties. Right. It just basically thinks most everything is not safe. Um, and the amygdala can be very handy for us. It's what helps us survive on a daily basis. And what our amygdala needs is our prefrontal cortex. And that's what helps us reason, help us, helps us make decisions, and can tell our amygdala that we are, in fact, safe. Is it like an interpreter or a translator of outside stimulus coming in and then it helps decide where it goes in terms of danger versus not danger? Yeah, absolutely. And so we really need our prefrontal cortex to be thinking clearly so that it can tell our amygdala, our guard dog, that we're okay, we're safe, we'll be okay. But what happens if we experience trauma is that our amygdala can become overactive. It can be stuck on on or become easily turned on, which then sends our body into fight, flight, or freeze. Fight meaning we're gonna stop and fight because we're not safe. Flight, we're gonna run away from the situation or freeze kind of like a possum and we just lay down and play dead. And it, that happens instantaneously without our, without our rational thinking or any effort. Our hearts will raise, will, our palms will be sweaty, or we might feel lightheaded. So like when someone cuts me off on my bike, I don't usually have a conscious thought of like, now I'm going to be upset and angry. It just happens. Absolutely. Instantaneously. 
So if we've experienced a lot of trauma or significant trauma, then our prefrontal cortex doesn't come back online very quickly to say, you're okay, Jana, you're, you're gonna be safe. The, the driver might be a jerk, but really you're gonna make it home safely. You make it home every day safely. So the key thing is, as we work with kids is, is knowing that they could have a highly, sort of a heightened state of this fight, flight, or freeze. And, and we then, have a lot of guard dogs who are very active. Yeah, and so we might see behaviors that we think are, are bad or annoying or manipulative or we can't understand them because maybe we went to hug them or something and they got really mad at us and we can't understand that. So it, it can help us not take it personally or think that they're trying to manipulate us, but actually they're, potentially their amygdala, their bodies have taken over and they can't think rationally until that emotion lives its life. The better we get at developing an awareness of our bodies and what, of what our own individual bodies do when we're experiencing stress or anxiety, the better we get at that and then tools we can develop to help mediate that can help us get back to that neutral place sooner. So how can parents or teachers even help kids develop that relationship with their own body and that understanding? I always say the number one thing to do is to help ourselves as caregivers. So doing our own work, so speak for myself, doing my own work and learning about what are my triggers and how to notice when I'm triggered early on so that I can use some of these strategies that we'll talk about. Then if I'm not activated, then I can engage with the child in a more, in a calm more centered, reflective way. It seems like it goes back to what you said of how the importance of not taking it personally. And if we're pretty activated and not using our own tools, then it's harder to not take the behaviors that we're seeing really personally. Absolutely. Just like the drivers on the road that you might take personally that they're out to get you and run you down. I'm pretty sure that's what's happening most of the <laughs> yes, time. Hopefully could be. But it's true. On a good day, I'm like, oh, that person went right in front of me and almost knocked me off my bike versus yeah. other responses I might have on days when I'm under a different level of stress. Yeah. So if we think about mindfulness, one definition to consider is paying attention to the present moment with kindness. Paying attention to right now and what is happening and just sort of accepting what it is without judgment. But even that sounds somewhat abstract. Really hard to do is what it is. I'm picturing yeah. like driving down the road and both kids are in the backseat yelling at each other and you're late for dropping them off at school. Yeah. You want to get really immersed in that experience, it sounds like. Yeah. <laughs> Well, when you're thinking about mindfulness, there's like two things to consider. One is well, we can use our breath as a way to mediate some of what we're experiencing, the stress and anxiousness and tension that we're, we or our children could be experiencing. So one thing is we can regulate our breath. So using our breath to help calm and soothe our nervous systems. So then another one is what fits really in the mindfulness is being aware of our breath. So it's observing your breath. And when you hear about meditators, they will often focus on their breath because your breath is something you have in the present moment at all times. So if you can focus on your breath, that can help bring you to the present moment. The reason that coming to the present moment can actually help to regulate our emotions is because our 
brains can't really distinguish the difference between what is happening now and what we think is happening. So our story about what is happening. Yeah, so our, it's our natural human instinct to think about the past, think about the future, and have sort of a negative bias to that. So in order to survive as a species, we have had to think of all the bad things that happen and identify those patterns to protect us from making bad decisions in the present. And the same, we have to anticipate bad things so that we won't make mistakes in the future. And that's been great for survival, but the brain isn't necessarily built for well-being. And that's where coming to the present moment and trying to put our efforts to not be mind-wandering, then that's what can then send messages, as I said, to our brains and bodies that we are okay right now. Over and over again, I hear from people that maybe before someone in their life died, they would, you know, maybe think about some of the hard things that could happen or bad things that have happened. But once that person died, that thinking strategy gets exponentially more intense and louder. I wonder if there's some connection with before it's all kind of hypothetical mm -hmm. and now there's evidence that something bad did really happen. So maybe my hypotheses are actually more grounded in reality than they were before. Mm -hmm. Yeah, that's interesting because you have proof that bad things do happen. But then also, you know, perhaps that's just because our, we are more inclined now to spend more time worrying about the future or ruminating on the bad things, the past, because we're, we're, we're vulnerable and that has mm -hmm. happened. And that's, that's, again, where it's mindfulness training. So it's not something that just happens overnight, like, oh, I'm going to focus on my breath and feel better. It's not a one and finished situation. Right. You have to do it again and again and again. Unfortunately or fortunately, it's a, it's a lifetime challenge. But one thing to think about is that our senses, all of our senses, are the doorway to the present moment. So like working with our kids is um, you, you don't have to say stop and let's, let's count our breaths because that, this, that's kind of abstract. But we can have a similar sort of physiological reaction if we have ourselves or our kids focus on what they see. So you could be driving in the car and you could say, let's all look out the window and count the things that are red for the next minute. By focusing on the sight and what they see, that is similar to coming into the present moment. It potentially has stopped us worrying, thinking about the past, worrying about the mm -hmm. future. And it's like lifting a weight. It's every time we, we use those senses to come to the present moment, we've done some brain, a brain lift to bring our attention back. We can do the same kind of thing with sound. You could be listening to music in the car with kids and we could see how many different instruments we hear or we could listen for certain words or almost turns it into a game it sounds like for the kids yeah. that gives them something to focus on and engage with absolutely you can also do that with tasting so mindful tasting when you're eating together you could see who could eat the bite the slowest and do it silently and so then you're really focused on that bite and then after they everybody's finished the bite, then you can talk about it as well, what they tasted and what they noticed and the texture and to make it really fun and playful. Is that something that teachers would use in the classroom with one particular child or is it something they would engage the whole classroom in? Well, I think 
teacher should engage the whole classroom <laughs> in that and, and do, see, do see that happening at all ages. So it's pretty exciting even to see three-year-olds in their, their own version. I think you would more than more you would see a teacher using it with the whole class rather than pulling a child aside. But but you can do it very informally. I mean, if somebody's really activated, sometimes just creating that space, you working on your own breath, you know, regulating your own breath, taking a deep breath, the child is is maybe overreacting or even underreacting, you know, mm. could be withdrawn as well. But then waiting for the emotion to live its life. It's like a wave. It's going to come and it's going to go. Make that a nice, safe space. Don't try to talk or reason with the child at that time and just to know they can't, even if they wanted to. That that part of their brain is not available for engagement right now. I think that's like the number one thing to know. Even if you try to bribe them, give them really good choices, they can't. You mentioned create a safe place or safe opportunity for that emotion to live its life. Like, What does that look like? Mm -hmm. Well, certainly different for every child. And that's this concept I like to think about is being attuned to the child, attuned to yourself but attuned to the child. So some children just need you to sit down on the floor, don't look at them, um, but you're just nearby. You're there, um, you may or may not say anything, and that's where you're you know, experimenting to see how they respond. And just because we might want a hug doesn't mean that that child wants a hug at that time. And I think that can be really hard for us as adults because yeah. it's uncomfortable. You might feel really sad, especially if you know a child lost a parent. You kind of want to swoop in and give them all that love and cuddling. And I'm so yeah. relieved to hear you say sometimes it's just sitting quietly next to them because if someone comes up to hug me, especially when I'm upset, I get very angry. Yeah. So it's nice to know that there's that understanding that for a lot of people, that automatic, what is perceived to be supportive, reaching out, caring, kindness, compassion doesn't translate all the time for everybody in the same way. And at this different times, because at different, once our, if our prefrontal cortex comes back online, then we might be ready for that hug. Yeah, people who yeah. know me well know when the red light is up and when the green light is up yeah. for coming to give Jana a hug. <laughs> yeah, and that's another thing if people want to look into the zones of regulation. They t the kids learn what the green zone is, what the yellow zone is, what the red zone is, and you can even talk about that as a parent. Green means they're calm. Yellow is they're starting to get activated, and red is they're don't touch me. So they get to the place where they say, I'm in the green zone or I'm in the red zone. Or you can also use that language to them. It looks like you might be, I, I'm, I'm seeing that you're crying or I see your face is red or, and it looks like you're maybe in the red zone. So I'm going to just, I'm going to sit in the couch. I'll be nearby. I'm right here when you're ready. So they know you're connected. Are there other ways that you would suggest talking to kids about what's going on in their bodies during these times? Definitely the time to do it is when we are feeling better. So when we're feeling neutral or even when we're happy because that's when our brains are fully online and more able to be present with that. So even if a child is three or four and not really reflective, but if they're jumping up with joy about something, oh, we're jumping up with joy. So you're reflecting that mm. back to them. I see a smile. I'm smiling too. And then as 
kids get older, it's similar kinds of things is showing back to them. Wow, I see you, you were smiling. It looked like you were feeling happy or maybe after an event happened, you say, ah, I can really tell you were starting to get mad. I saw your cheeks get red. Do they, do they feel warm? Are they still warm? All the way through, it's like you're helping build a vocabulary that links emotion with bodily sensation or expression. Absolutely. It's that brain-body connection. The more awareness we can have and develop about our bodies, um, the better we are able to cope with it as it's happening and or intervene sort of as we see ourselves ex escalating. We have just a few minutes left. And I'm, one thing I want to ask you about is gratitude. Because mm -hmm. I, I mean, I read about it all the time and it feels like it's moved into this almost cliche world. And I just wonder if you could speak a little bit about how does gratitude play into this whole experience of grief and trauma and stress in kids? Gratitude can have physiological benefits, um, but it is important when you're thinking about gratitude not to try to get people to just be happy or, gee, you should be grateful. You, you, your mom died, but you have a dad. Um, your brother died, but you had a sister, or... At least you had 20 years with your mom right. instead of only having seven years with your mom. Right. That, that, that's not what we're talking about. So two points with that. One is that the act of expressing gratitude does have a positive physiological experience. So if we can practice it at times, you know, there's even some research that shows just a few... Uh, minutes, whether we're writing it or we're expressing it, uh, of gratitude a day can have a positive benefit on our, our stress and our mental health. The other thing I love to think about is that this whole concept of yes and, yes, my mom died and it's horrible. And there's a little bit of sun coming through that cloud right now at that moment. And I can make and have lots of space for that yes and being present with the grief and the sadness and the fear that's there and holding that and allowing that to be there as I can tolerate it. And if I can cast my eyes to the, that blue sky coming through the clouds for a moment, then that get, not only gives me a sense of hope, but actually does give me the physiological benefit of, of seeing something positive. So it's making a change on the inside Yeah. if we incorporate the yes and or yeah. trying to pay attention to the things that we are experiencing in the moment, coming into the present moment and absorbing something that in that time feels positive or as you said, hopeful or comforting or reassuring. Yeah. People who've experienced trauma can uh, have a tendency to disassociate. So we disassociate from the fear and the pain and the sadness and all the horrible emotions that come with loss or whatever traumatic experience. And we disassociate that so that we feel like we can move on. But when we disassociate from the negative, we're also cutting ourselves off to the positive. And so part of my healing process has been to sort of, the, again, that yes and, is I can hold space in small bits for the, the really hard part, but and, I can also for a moment express gratitude for maybe a friendship that I have at that very moment. And so by having the yes and, it helps me to stay connected to the really hard parts so that I can also have the really good parts. It's really interesting to think about the idea of if we've had a negative experience, we shut the door 
figuratively on our emotions, we shut them on a lot of them, both the positive and the negative. Yeah. And if you're going to start to open that door, these practices can really help fortify the beneficial so mm-hmm. that we can withstand what's behind that door in terms of the negative. Absolutely. Well, thank you so much. I feel like we could talk for like nine more hours about this. So we might have to have you back for part two. And thanks everyone for joining us for this episode. If you want to listen to any of our past episodes, check us out on our website. It's D-O-U-G-Y dot O-R-G. You can find us on iTunes or any of your podcast listening platforms that you have. And we want to make sure we're talking about the things that are important or interesting to you. So if you have ideas about an episode or a topic you want to hear us talk about, send me an email at help at D-O-U-G-Y dot and just throw podcast somewhere there in the subject line. Thanks for listening. Hope you'll join us again next time. Thanks for listening.